All right, let's read in Ephesians now, uh, Ephesians 4.32. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us, and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. This is the word of the Lord. Today, we are looking at sex and greed. Human history is filled with major disruptions caused by sex and greed. But not just history, major historical events, human families, maybe even your own family, they're also filled with major disruptions because of sex and greed. The Bible frequently addresses these topics, sex and greed, and, and it's because sex and greed they play to core things about human nature. And so we're not surprised that there's so much a part of of human experience. Something deep and basic in us. Now, from our text today, we see three things. We see why, why it is that sex and greed take over our hearts. Why sex and greed take over our hearts. And then secondly, we're going to look at a different perspective on sex and greed, and then thirdly, what satisfies our hearts. So why sex and greed take over our hearts, a different perspective on sex and greed, and what satisfies our hearts. Now, before we get into the text, I need to do a little bit of background work and and bring more of the the biblical perspective uh, into the context of our passage. So if you're someone who's exploring Christianity, or you're someone who grew up in church, some kind of church setting, I want you to know that Christianity is extremely pro-sex. Sometimes people mistakenly think that Christianity, it's, it, it, it comes with this, this distaste for sex, that Christianity finds sex something uh, to be uh, avoided, something that's unclean, and that's just not the case. But maybe you have that impression, maybe it's because at times some Christians in some prominent places have given that impression, but it's just not, it's just not the case as you, as you look through the scriptures. If you read the Bible, you cannot get around the fact that the Bible is, is highly favorable towards sex. In the very first two chapters of the Bible, God creates sex, and he declares it to be good, and he calls for all living creatures and all people to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And, and the Bible begins, these first few chapters, begins with a, a tastefully described scene 
of male and female nudity. And it's without shame. They're without shame. The scene is presented without shame. And so as you become familiar with the Bible, you realize that there's also, not just at the beginning, there's an entire book in the scriptures centered around the physically intimate love between a man and a woman. It's the Song of Solomon. And so we also see this in the Bible, though. The Bible is extremely pro-sex, but though sex is divinely created, divinely mandated, sex can also become distorted. It can become disordered. It can even become destructive. And so whether you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian, all of us agree that this is what we've seen. This is what we know about society and, and even in our own lives. We agree that there are some things about sex that are wrong. There are some things that are evil. There are some, there are some things about it that can be very unhealthy. For instance, don't we all agree? Don't we all agree that consent is required? And don't we all agree that children must never be made parties to it? And don't we all agree that desire, which may be fine and good, it can become addiction. It can become obsession. And, and that's why we have sex addiction, addiction clinics and, and counseling. But you know this also. We may all agree with all those things, and those would be distortions. Those would be things that would be wrong. Those would be things that are unhealthy. You do know that it has not always been the case, that those things weren't always viewed as wrong, disordered, or unhealthy. That, that it wasn't always the case that consent was required or that children should never be involved. There are governments, there are cultures, there are countries, both in history but even in the present, where those practices are permitted and even promoted. So sexual ethics can't be determined merely just by whatever the majority viewpoint is at that place at that time. There are some practices, some values that are just wrong. Even if the whole culture finds them to be acceptable, the noted Christian counselor, Diane Langberg, she tells a story of being invited to give a seminar. Invited to another country to give a seminar to Christian leaders. She was invited to give a seminar to Christian leaders of another country, and the seminar was about how to help, how to help victims of sexual abuse and trauma. So it was for Christian leaders who wanted to be educated and trained about how to help victims of sexual abuse and trauma. And in that place, sexual abuse and, and incense, they were rampant. It was all over. Many children had been hurt by fathers. And then in that seminar, before those Christian leaders, Diane realized that among all of the leaders present and all the pastors attending that seminar, nearly all of them, were involved in incestuous relationships. The practice in that place was so endemic that even these leaders were engaged in it and they didn't realize it was wrong. Ethics cannot be determined by majority viewpoint. Now I said, we're looking at why sex and greed take over our hearts. When, when sex takes over our hearts, when, when greed takes over our hearts, well, we become willing to cross lines, to, to cross over lines that aren't right to cross, to leave good and, and to enter into dark areas, to enter into distorted areas. Let me just give you two statements, one about greed, one about sexual distortion. First of all, a statement about greed. Greed, greed is when our hearts demand money. Greed is when our hearts demand what money 
can obtain. Money is not inherently evil. Purchased goods, having property, being able to acquire services, that's not inherently evil. But when our hearts, not just desire, but when our hearts demand to have them, well, then that desire, when it becomes a demand, that's when things go wrong. You, you children understand how this works, the difference between a desire, which can be fine, and a demand, which can be wrong. For instance, maybe you, you've had a desire one, one, one sun, Saturday afternoon, you've had a desire to have some snacks. That's not inherently wrong. It's fine to have a desire to have snacks. But when you start demanding snacks, I want snacks. I want them now. Why can't I have them? And you start pouting. You start grumbling and fussing. Well, then the desire has turned into a demand. And, and you see how that, you know how that's, that's not okay. You start doing things that are not right. When our hearts, when we as people have hearts that are unhappy, when these things get denied, then things go wrong. Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 15, he said, take heed, beware of covetousness, for your life does not consist in the abundance of the things you possess. Life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. So that's a statement about greed. Now a statement about sexual distortion. Let me just start with a statement about sex. Sex, here's, here's my statement. Sex is a request and it's an expression. It's a request and an expression of committed love. And you're like, well, not necessarily, right? Just, just take the statement and let's, let's go with this a little bit. Sex is a request and an expression of committed love. Sex, as it's originally designed, it requests committed love. Specifically, it's requesting the committed love in a marriage between a husband and a wife. But when you disconnect committed love from sex, when you try to take them and separate them, that's when sexual distortion results. Now, for instance, in our days, in our time, sex is treated solely as just biological coupling. It's treated as just an organic physiological process. It's, it's, it's treated, it's, it's considered to be something that's just like digestion. It's just biological. We're told, well, on top of that, sex just requires consent. But the truth is, sex, as it was originally designed, sex was always made and only made for committed love, committed love between the husband and the wife. And so the reality is when you sleep with someone, when you sleep with someone, implicitly, deep inside, you're asking the person a question. You're requesting from them committed love. And the reality is when, when you willingly show yourself to someone, in your core, as a human, you're posing a silent question. You may never say the words, but you're asking a silent question. You're requesting committed love. And, and even when you look on someone, maybe look on a depiction of someone, look on an image of someone, you're not just looking at anatomy. You are searching. You're searching for committed love. Isn't sex, isn't sex a request for company? Isn't it, isn't it a request for acceptance, to be received, to be wanted, and to be wanted the next day after you've been seen. We know this is true by experience, and the scripture puts this into words. Genesis 2, 23. We've got this description of what God has knit into sex, baked into it. 
And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, Adam is speaking here in poetry. It's even in song. He's speaking about sex. And and that's just at a superficial level he's talking about sex. But Adam says when a husband and a wife, when they connect in this way, it's, it's something metaphysical. It's a reunion. Metaphysically, it's a reunion at a deep human level. It's a reunion of two who originally were one. The rib taken out of Adam rejoins Adam. And so this passage about human beings and sex and about marriage, it's quoted again in the Bible. It's quoted in the Gospels three times. It's saying sex is more than just biological coupling. Sex is this request and an expression of full person commitment to one another. And so that's, that's why Jesus commits it, quotes it in, in the Gospels. Uh, this is the passage that Jesus quotes to criticize groundless divorces, divorces that are done and there are no right grounds for it. He's saying sex is this question. It's, sex is this question, will you commit to me? And sex is also the answer to that question. Sex is the answer that says, yes, I do. Will you commit to me? Yes, I do. And so when Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 quotes the same passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 16, he says, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Paul understands that sex is a physical act, but it's more than only a physical act. It's a medical, metaphysical act. It, it's a spiritual union that's also taking place in addition to the physical union. And that union, we're not meant to break that union. It, 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 when we break that union, it messes with us. It messes with our, our humanity. It messes with our personhood. It, it becomes like a wound. It becomes like a wound. Like if, you've, if you've split your skin open, but you, you, you put it back together, you bandage it together, and it's starting to heal, starting to come back together, but then you rip it open again. You rip open that wound. At a personhood level, the sex act, without committed love, it's a joining, but then it's also a tearing away, tearing away a connection from your person. If I can be simplistic about it, sex is not only a matter of biology, of, of, of nerves, of glands, of functioning. Sex is biology, but sex is also psychology. Sex is also sociology, and it's even theology. And that's why when you sleep with someone, and you may be thinking it's just a one-time thing, whether you consciously know it or not, you have asked for committed love, and the offer has been refused. Or, or, or you have offered to someone whether you never put it into words or not, you've offered committed love and the offer has been rejected. And even if, even if committed love was never consciously in your mind, that's the reality of what transacted. And the refusal, the rejection that was implicit with that, it will hurt you. It will, it will harden you. It starts to dehumanize you. In a hookup, something about your core person is hardened. And harmed. But even in marriage, in a, 
in a sexless marriage, the absence of sex indicates that the marriage is unwell because sex is more than biology, because sex is a question. Will you love me? Will you receive me? The absence is the answer to that. And, and in a bad marriage, when sex is present but love is absent, in a bad marriage, when sex is present but love is absent, sex becomes a lie. The presence of sex is again posing the question, will you love me? Will you receive me? The sex act says yes, but the lived reality proves the lie. And that's why the act of sex in a loveless marriage is so wrong. Because sex is a statement, and sex must not become a lie. Do you love me? Will you receive me? Will you treat me as your own? And here's what this means about, about pornography. When you look at pornography, it's like you're asking a corpse, a dead body, you're asking a corpse for commitment. The image of a person on a screen cannot respond to the inherent offer and request for committed love. You might as well be talking to a statue. You might as well be proposing to a statue, proposing to a corpse. Now, let's, let's look at a different perspective on sex and greed. Verses 3 through 7, here in our text, they give two instructions. Very simple. He says, keep from sexual immorality, and he says, keep from greed. Those two things, keep from sexual immorality, keep from greed. Verse 3, he says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. And he says this three more times in the next, uh, he says this three times in these three verses. He's saying, fornication. If you're a Christian, fornication cannot be part of your life. It's certainly not part of your reputation, he's saying. It shouldn't even be named among you. Now, let's, let's have a definition. What is fornication? Fornication is sexual activity outside of marriage. Fornication is sexual activity outside of marriage. So that would include premarital touching. That would include cheating on your spouse. That would include prostitution. It covers all of these things. But those activities, those activities... In the majority culture of that, that time, those activities were considered okay outside of Jewish circles. And Paul is speaking both to Jewish converts, and the congregation also has Gentile converts, non-Jewish converts, converts where all of that would have been normal, would have been fine. But Paul says fornication, it has to stop, he says. He says if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you leave those things behind beds that you no longer share, shows that you will no longer watch. The marriage bed, he says, is to be kept honorable and undefiled. The lordship of Christ, it extends to your bed. The lordship of Christ extends to your body. And then he lists three things here. He says, keep yourself from fornication, but also keep yourself from uncleanness, he says next. That term, akarth. When you get up here, it just all goes out of your head. It speaks of sexual deviation. Uh, and, and here we come to this question, well, what defines deviation and what defines normal? Romans 1.24, Paul speaks of women with women, men with men. Those would be distortions, deviations. And as we said earlier, we can't go with whatever the majority opinion is. 
The majority has been terribly wrong in the past. We can't go even with our own internal desires. Those go wrong too. They become dark. They become distorted. We have to come to the word of God. The good God who made a good thing. He's the one who's trustworthy to instruct us about what desires are good, what desires lead to life, what desires lead to death. And so fornication, all uncleanness, he says, let it not even be named among you. And also, then he lists greed, covetousness. Uh, Covetousness is this, this outsized desire for something, an inordinate desire for something, money or possessions or a person. You have... You have, for instance, you have, you have decent sunglasses, but you want more sunglasses. You have a house, but now you must have a weekend house. You've got clothes, but now you must have designer clothes. In, in the children's class on Wednesday night, the teaching material that we use, it gives this excellent definition of covetousness. It defines it this way. Covetousness is wanting something so much that it disturbs your inner peace. Covetousness is wanting something so much, it disturbs your inner peace. Greed makes you unhappy with what you already have. Greed demands more. Now, it's striking. It, 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 covetousness is, is, the, is, given, is forbidden in the Tenth Commandment. The Ten Commandments, they give these ten core commandments. Some of them are given with just a few words, and others, it, they, they fill an entire paragraph. The Tenth Commandment, which forbids coveting, is one of those long commandments. Listen to how it enumerates the types of things that we covet. Exodus twenty seventeen, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when you read through that, there... It's almost amusing. He's saying, don't covet your neighbor's ox nor his donkey. For us, what that might mean is, it is easier. It's easy to wish that you had a better truck. It's easy to wish that you had a more reliable car. To envy the person who isn't always having to take their vehicle in for repairs. To wish, to wish that you lived in a, a nicer part of town, a, a more chic part of town. Coveting says, you've got something that I want. I see where you live. I see who you have. I see who you get to be married to. I see your stuff, and I'm unhappy that I don't have it. As the song goes, why can't I be you? Maybe the opposite of covetousness would be contentment, where we can say, I'm grateful for what I have. I'm at peace about what I have, even if it's less than the other people in my circles. Paul in Philippians 4 says that he's learned the secret of living both in abundance and living in need. Well, what's so bad about coveting? What's so bad about coveting? Who does does that hurt? It hardly seems like having a covetous desire would hurt anyone. But verse 5, the text says that a covetous person is an idolater. Colossians 3 says says covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. How is coveting idolatry? When you lose your inner peace because of what you don't have. You don't have that thing. You don't have that place. You don't have that person. It's because you've set your heart, your expectations, that if I have this, that will give me peace. That is what will give me worth. That will give me security. That will give me true happiness and delight. 
You're saying when you, when you covet something, someone, someplace, you're saying, my life doesn't have enough unless I have that. That thing is where true worth resides. That deserves my worship. One commentator describes the covetous person like this. The covetous person, they're those with a strong desire to acquire and to keep for themselves more and more money and possessions because they love and trust and obey wealth rather than God. Do you overwork? Do you work too much? You neglect things you shouldn't neglect because you're working. Your overwork can be a great indicator of where you find security, where you find worth, where you find delight, what you worship. Only God can give us the security that we crave. Money can't do it. Money's powerful, but it's not powerful enough. And then there's also this. Only God, only God is deep enough to be worthy of your adoration. You can pour out your love on a fabulous wardrobe, but that won't be deep enough, strong enough to keep that love. And that's why people change their wardrobes out after a season, after a few years. There are few, if any, people who are just swept up with their clothes from 2007, from 1997. And your, your clothes and your outfits, as much as you love them, they will never love you back. God alone is worthy of our ultimate love. And, and so with these two areas, sexual immorality and greed, the text says, keep away. Keep away. Don't touch it. Don't dip into it. Don't linger on the edges of it. Verse 3, he says, don't practice these things. Verse 4, he says, don't waste your talk about these things. Verse 4, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. He's saying, you remove yourself. You remove yourself from sexual immorality so absolutely that you don't even make those off-color jokes about them. You don't banter about sleeping around, about gays, about prostitution. You, if, you, if, if, you're, if you're talking about someone who has same-sex attraction, you don't talk about them with ridicule, with scorn. You talk about them as a person to love, not someone to mock. And the problem isn't that, that the humor references sex. That's not the problem. It's only when the humor makes light of practices that are sad. It, it's only when the humor makes light of practices that are, that are distorted. We should never laugh at iniquity. And then in verse 5, he says, also don't be part of people who practice these things. In verse 5, no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous person. It's those same three things. Verse 7, do not be partakers with them. Why? Well, one reason is because in reality, we are very susceptible to pressure from people. In reality, people do pressure us. We find it very hard not to go with the crowd. And so if, if you surround yourself with people who are heading away from God, it will take a superhuman ability for you not to head away from God. We guard the company that we keep we guard the company that we keep because we are weak. Now, are we saying that, that Christians should, should isolate themselves 
from the non-Christian world, that, that Christians should live in these, these, communings, commun- these communities in the, in the wilderness just so that they won't get contaminated. No, that's not what we're saying. Jeremiah 29, written to, to God's people who were captives in a corrupt culture. It says in Jeremiah 29, verse 4, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, dwell in them, Plant gardens, eat their fruit, take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished, and seek the peace of that city where I've caused you to be carried away captive. Seek the peace of that city where you're a captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. So you're to live. You're to work for the good. Pray for the peace of the city where you live as captives, as if you're in Babylon. But, but, the experience will be this. You are never, you are never going to truly be part of them. You will always be an outsider, a temporary traveler there. Your values are always going to be in another kingdom. Your culture will never be of this world. 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so that means you're going to live like that, live like a light in the darkness, and you can be some of the most loving and committed people that will ever intersect with the life of an unbeliever. And you can open up your life to them. There's nothing that you need to hide. 1 Corinthians 6 says, I don't call you, I don't call you to disassociate from every immoral person. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. He said, that's not what we're, we're asking for. But you have to understand this. As you live there, as you live in the city and work for the good of the city, you have to understand that you can't and you won't share the core values of the people who don't know Jesus. Because to them, Jesus will always be the uninvited guest who has shown up. And to you, Jesus is your whole life. He's the only rabbi. He's your only life coach. He is your Lord. You're you're saying to him, to whom else will we go? You alone, Jesus, have the words of life. And so your Jesus leads you in sexual ethics and in how you value your stuff and your spending. And even if you don't understand it all, you trust him. You trust his word. You trust that all of the teachers and experts and researchers in world history, of all of them, Jesus knows best. Well, let's close now with what satisfies our hearts. What satisfies our hearts? The the text, it contains hard words. Not only does it tell us to be spotless from, from sexual immorality, to be free from greed, not even to be talking about it lightly. It also says that those who elect to remain in that world, if you choose to remain in that world, he says you have no part in the kingdom of Christ. Verse 5, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Here's what he's saying. If you can't give up your stuff, 
then Jesus Christ hasn't taken hold of your heart. He's saying, if you insist on doing sex outside of the lines, it's doubtful that you ever committed yourself to this king who is Christ and God. He's saying you're still living against God. You're still living disobedient to God. And, and verse 6 warns, the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. And at this point, you're thinking, wrath? Okay, we're really going to go back to this, wrath? Why is God angry at these practices? Well, his wrath is tied to love. Remember the context. It says, in the image of God, he made you male and female. In the image of God, he made you male and female. It's noble. It's the highest honor and glory. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Sex is one of the most beautiful displays of the image of God. And so when sexual distortion mars something beautiful, it's marring the image of God in you. Something that he loves, something that's beautiful, is being marred and torn apart. Love would rightly be angered to see something beautiful that you love torn apart. And so God's anger is stirred by the marring of something so beautiful. We said that for, for human beings, the sex act, it always contains this, this unspoken request. It always contains this unspoken request for committed love. It's an expression of yearning in that way. And so whether it's greed, whether it's sex, our hearts are unsatisfied. We're longing for more. We're asking. We're yearning. What is it? What is it that will satisfy our hearts? Our hearts will only be satisfied when, when we have disclosed ourselves, when we've offered ourselves, and then we're loved in return. When we request committed love and the other person answers that request and says, yes, I will love you. To live and to be unloved, to live and to be unloved is intolerable. It's a hell. But to live and to be loved so much that someone would lay their life down for you that's perfect. In the gospel, Jesus Christ, the lovely and the beautiful one, who is the express image of God, he loved you so much that he was stripped. He was naked on the cross. And he was rejected. He was rejected so that you could be accepted by God. He let himself, the beautiful image of God, become marred and disfigured in the sight of God by carrying your sins, of having it all on him. And seeing, and when God looked on that image, marred and distorted by sin, the wrath of God fell on him. Not on us, but on Jesus. And when Jesus fell under the wrath of God, so that you could be raised in the estimation of God, he achieved for you an answer to that request for committed love. By his death and his resurrection, you receive committed love if you believe. Well, how? How's that? It's because by what he did on the cross, he puts you into the ultimate marriage, 
the relationship between the believer and Jesus Christ is always pictured as the ultimate marriage. It's a forever union, a forever joining. Jesus committing himself in love to those who had been looking for committed love all of their lives. All of us are looking. All of us are looking for someone who will love us and who will not go away the next day. To have someone love us, to know us and see us for who we are and remain committed to us. The text says, He loved me. Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. And so if you believe, he says you can give thanks in verse 4. Not all this coarse talk. He says, but the giving of thanks. Why give thanks? You give thanks when you have received something. Verse 5 says you've been loved, you've been forgiven. And because of that, here's what you receive. Here's what you possess. Here's what you can give thanks for. You've got an inheritance. You have a reservation of a place and of property in the kingdom of Christ and of God. A certain future inheritance where all of your coveting, it just won't even be an issue. It will come to an end. It's so good that whatever was on your wish list from 2023 or on 2024 or 2025, none of those things are going to interest you a whit because this inheritance that you'll have entered into is so much better. Why wish for crackers when you will have a feast? And when you receive the love and the forgiveness of Jesus, it will change you. When you've actually received it, something inside of you warms, melts, it's affected because you're now loved. Because you're loved by him. You don't have to pursue lovers. You don't have to give yourself to other lovers like a needy person. And you don't have to keep asking others to give themselves to you. Because Jesus has given himself to you in love. All of this also speaks about self-loathing, self-hatred. Th- think of the, the self-hatred that results. How you despise yourself when, when you unclothe yourself, you show yourself to another only to have them say, no thanks, and they leave you the next day, the next month, the next year. That will make you hate yourself. But in the gospel, Jesus sees all of us. He sees the inside ugliness, and he says, I see you, I do see you, and I commit myself to you forever, and I will still be here in the morning. He says, my love is stronger than death. If you get this, it will take an axe to all the neediness, all the grasping. It takes an axe to greed, because you've got this incredible inheritance, and you've got this love. Has God poured his love into your heart? Little children, Keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we make a request. We ask, will you commit yourself to us? We offer ourselves. You see all that's here, the mess, the sin, and we commit ourselves to you. We believe. We turn away from all of these foolish things that we've given ourselves over to. We come to you But we ask, will you commit yourself to us in love, in blood? May it be so, and may it it be the treasure that gives us great joy and gratitude each day. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.